The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Have your Bibles this morning. We're actually going to bounce around on the passage that we're going to use. And the reason for that is we've been studying the life of Christ together now for quite a few weeks. And we are approaching this morning the triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry is one of the things in Christ's life that we actually see in all of the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have an account of all of them. And so we are going to look into multiple of those this morning. The first one that we'll be looking at, and so you can turn there, is in Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. And then you can put your thumb or your little bookmark, if you have one in your, in your Bible there, to Matthew chapter 21, because we'll be going there uh, as well. The rest of the scripture hopefully will be on the screen uh, for you as I bounce around some this morning, no doubt. But we get to an exciting time in the life of Christ and the followers of Christ with the triumphal entry. Last week, we focused on Jesus raising Lazarus uh, from the dead, and we ended our Sunday morning sermon asking the question that Jesus asked to Martha, and the question was, was do you believe? It's a question that still needs to hang in our head. It's a question that we still need to be thinking about and asking ourselves really every day. Do I believe this? Do I, do I hold to this? Is this true in my, in my life? And like I said last week, you are going to answer this one way or the other. There's no, there is no middle ground. But after this scene of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, calling him, calling him by name, and Lazarus comes out, and he unbinds him, and now Lazarus is alive. If you go to the Gospel of John, you would see that after that, pretty soon after that, uh, we see Jesus having dinner. And he's having dinner with Mary, with Martha, and with Lazarus and his disciples are there, and I'm sure there's other people there as well, and they're, they're eating dinner together, and man, it must have been just a really, a really joyous time. I mean, somebody who had been dead for four days is sitting there eating. That's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's a dinner that you, you'd want to be a part of, right, and to see. And in the midst of this excitement, in the midst of this dinner, is when Lazarus's sister Mary would go to Jesus with, with this special ointment, and would pour this ointment out on Christ and would use her hair to, to wipe his, his feet and to, and to anoint him. And we see in Scripture that this was actually preparing him for his death, right? Preparing him for his burial. But again, that, that scene that must have took place. Again, this joyous occasion, this, this joyous dinner is happening. And then Mary kind of changes maybe the feeling of what is going on there. And people are are wondering uh, what has happened. And we even see the account of, of Judas here. We, we see the true heart of Judas Iscariot, the disciple, in that story. Because Judas gets angry at what's happening. And he, he, he tries to twist it so that he would sound very holy, right? Of saying, couldn't this have been used for the poor? But, but John knows his heart. And in the Gospel of John, it says, he said this because of the greed that he had. Because he was the keeper of money and he often took from it. See, Judas was a, was a thief as well. He would, he would steal from the, from the money that they had. And so a very interesting dinner 
no doubt that took place. And soon after this dinner, Jesus would then embark on his journey into Jerusalem of what we'll be focusing in this morning, which would then eventually lead to the cross, to him being on the cross. Again, I want us to remember how close the cross is when we're thinking about a timeline. This is getting very close, just a few days away. Not very far at all. And we come to this thing of the triumphal entry and we have to ask, why? Why, why do we have this? Why is this in scripture? Why is it recorded? What is the significance of it? And there must be some. And so I hope to answer that this morning and also uh, tonight. Some probably get through the first couple points this morning, finish the last point um, tonight. But here's the three points if you want to mark them down to kind of know where we're going. This is why it was recorded, I believe. Number one, it shows us the power of his word. Number two, it's the proclamation of his position. And number three, it is the praise that he is due and the praise that he has always been due. So like I said, we're going to bounce around a little bit. First, let's start in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 29. We'll read to verse 35 to look at the power of his word here. It says, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. Now for me, this is one of the most uh, interesting parts of this whole story, because of how it all happens, of how it all goes down in this situation. But we, we must take note of something to st- before, we, before we continue on. And it's simply this. Jesus seems to be, he is, it doesn't seem to be, he is in absolute control of everything. Of this whole thing, how it's playing out, how it's going to happen. Jesus is in complete control of it all. And it, it really is something to behold. If, if you're like me, you like to be in control of things. I like to know what is going on. It can be difficult to let things go and to trust. I could have had a stroke this week myself with this dinner. I told him on Thursday, I walked in, I'm like, are you close to being ready? Because it doesn't seem like it. And I'm stressing out here because tomorrow's the dinner. There's going to be a lot of people here and it needs to be nice. And this place is a disaster. And so in my head, I'm thinking, I might need to step in. Maybe something needs to happen, but that's control issues, right? And you need to teach yourself, no, calm down. It'll be fine. But I like to be in control. And something that I see here with Christ is he's in complete control of what is happening. The timing of everything. If you know the timing of this story and when all this is starting to take place, it is during the time of Passover. That is very significant for what is going to take place. For Christ to go to the cross and to die for the sins of man, it was important that it was during Passover because Passover was a celebration for the Jewish people. 
that they celebrated their freedom from Egypt, of, of, of the Lord freeing them from the Egyptians. And we remember all of the plagues, and it gets to that very last plague of the angel of death that would go through the camp and and God had told Israel, you have to put blood on the doorposts. And if, if you have blood on the doorposts of the lamb, we, the angel of death will pass by your home and you will not be inflicted with the angel of death. It, it will not happen to you. And just as it said, the angel of death passed through the camp and passes through Egypt and the, and the firstborn and all of the households die unless, unless that blood was on the door. And then the angel of death would thus Passover, right, would, would pass over the house. And what we see with Christ's death is his sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one that is needed for our sins so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we will not have to experience eternal death. Only, only Christ can do that. And so it, it needed to take place during this time, and Christ has set it up that it will. It's going to take place during Passover. If that's not fascinating enough, we also see him instructing the disciples here uh, some instructions that if I was one of the disciples, I would not have been happy with the instructions that were given me. I would have said, I need more. I need uh, some more assurance that when I go and steal this person's colt, that they're going to be okay with it. I mean, that's really how I would have, have felt in that moment. Because he doesn't give them much to work with. If anybody asks, just say the Lord needs it. Okay, I, I don't, no, I'm not doing that. I mean, that would have been really my response in that scenario. You can call it lack of faith, and it would have been, I guess. I wouldn't have been comfortable but Jesus has made sure that everything is working out here. Not just that the disciples can go and find a colt tied up. Not just that the colt will be there. But when they start to untie the colt and somebody comes up to them and says, what are you doing? Why are you taking that? They can look them in the eye and say, the Lord, the Lord needs it. And it's pretty interesting when you go from verse 34 to 35, there really seems like there should be more information there. But they say, hey, the Lord needs it. And the next thing we see is them throwing their clothes up on the colt and getting it ready for Jesus to ride on. We do not see the interaction. We do not see what the person who owned the colt had to say. We just see that it is done. That by the power of the word of God saying the Lord needs it, that the people respond. All of this is happening this way because in fact, it was planned before time ever began. It wasn't Jesus just taking circumstances and saying, oh, I can make this work. And oh, I think maybe this will, this will work out how I want it to in the end. If we, if we do this here, or go this here. No, before time had ever began, this had been planned. It had been done. It had been for Seen. It was, it was planned out by God. Danny Aiken, he's a president of one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, Southeastern Seminary. I saw a quote of his that I thought was really good. He said, with his arrival, the die is cast. There will be no turning back. This is the part I like. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world will now be slain in space and in time. 
I think that's really important because there's a lot of people today who do not believe in a historical Christ. They do not believe that Jesus actually was a Messiah. They just say that the the things that he stands for is what lives. The things that he talked about is what reigns supreme. And no, that's not the case at all. If Jesus wasn't alive in space and time, if he didn't do these things in actual space and time, if he didn't actually die on a cross in space and time, and if he didn't raise from the dead, actually, in space and in time, then he's nothing. Then he's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean a thing. But yet what we see is we see the Lord orchestrating everything for it to happen right now at this moment. The time had come for God to show the power of his word. And we see it happening at the start of this entry into Jerusalem. Throughout scripture, you simply cannot escape the power of God's word. You you just can't do it. As you look at it, the Bible speaks of itself as being very powerful, not just to all of us together, but even on a very personal level. In Romans chapter one, verse 16 through 17, Paul would write, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul himself would say, this is the power that we have is the gospel message. That is the word of God. That's the power. That's all that we can hold on to. It's all we need to hold on to. Now, I've talked about this before in our evangelistic efforts, in our efforts to share the gospel with our family members, in our strategies that we come up in churches of how to effectively win the lost. I don't know if you know this. I was just put on a team uh, for our state convention. I'm in charge of our sending team, which is evangelism in the country or in our, in our state of trying to encourage churches to, to come up with ways to get churches to share the gospel better, to share the gospel more. And to be honest, I, I struggle with that a little bit because I don't know if there's any strategy better than what God has given us of just looking pastors in the eye and saying, you need to trust the word of God will do the work. Speak it faithfully. Speak it true. Live it out and trust that it is the power that you need. It's not how fancy your building is. It's not even necessarily how nice your people are. Yes, all that stuff is good. All that stuff is important. It's not how well you can have all these verses memorized and point somebody to something, even though, again, that's very good. It's the power of the gospel working in somebody's life. You need to trust in that. You need to pray that God will use that, that he will use his word because he's promised to use his word. In Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, it tells us this about God's word. Not only is it the power for salvation, but it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, God has given us his word to what? To show us ourselves, to actually really see ourselves. You cannot know who you are apart from the word of God. You just, 
You just cannot do it because only God's word really shows us who we are and where we stand in all of eternity. And that's very important. And a lot of people want to run from that because it gets very ugly when we start to see who we are. It gets very real when we start to see who we are because we start to think, I, I don't like this. I don't, I don't want to think of myself this way. I don't want to think of other people this way as sinners or whatever else it may be at that moment. But only God's word can really reveal to us who we are because it is our source of truth. It is what points us to righteousness. Now, while that can seem very scary and that can seem very difficult, Psalm chapter one, verse one through three tells us this about God's word. Listen, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And listen what the word of God does. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is the power of God's word in our life. To help us to feel as if we're a tree planted by streams of, of living waters, producing fruit in our life. It, it's what gives us fruit. It's what, it what, it's what helps us to, to grow and to be, and to be nourished. You, you guys know how good it feels to be nourished, do you not? Some of you are thinking about it right now. I mean, just being really honest, I am, I, I am too. I'm hungry. It feels good to eat. It feels good to drink water when you're really thirsty. Right? That, that feels good. That is what the word of God is to us. It sustains us. And we desperately need it in our life. And we serve a God who's good enough to give it to us, to nourish us. And lastly, on this point in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 through 11, we have this promise. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and I shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We can have confidence in God's word, knowing that it will succeed. It will succeed. It, it will not return void. It will not be empty. God doesn't just loosely talk for no reason. When he speaks, there's for purposes and it's for a point and it is going to achieve exactly what it needs to achieve. Now, I think we struggle with this because we see how this just isn't a part of our life. This is so foreign to us. I think it's hard for us to grasp how 100% of the time God's word works and is effective to achieve the purpose he wanted it to achieve. If you have children in here, you'll know how little your word seems to have an impact at times. I mean, you just get it. You just understand. Hey, hey, did you pack your lunch? I will. Hey, you need to pack your lunch. Hey, pack your lunch. On the way to school. Do you have your lunch? Oh, I forgot. Are you kidding me? 
I mean, it's the most frustrating thing sometimes. You understand it. And I realize my word doesn't have the power that I think it has. And you might say, well, you need to be a better dad. You need to step up. And really, I'd love to sit with you at your house and you show me. I mean, I would. I'd love for you to just walk me through it. We just, we just don't have that ability. We're getting ready to enter a time of, of voting for a president, and we're going to hear all kinds of great things. It really reminds me of, of middle school voting for presidents. You're going to have pizza every day, you know, and you're going to do this. Our lockers are going to double in size. We're going to have all, all these promises that the, that the president of our school would make that we all knew you can't do that. We're going to have recess all the time. I mean, that's, I vote for them. Okay, deal. It's kind of similar in our presidential races today. They're going to promise us all kinds of things. They're going to say all kinds of stuff. But the problem is there, there's checks and balances within our government. And we, we're in a government that's really divided. And so it's very hard to actually get anything through. So they can say everything they want to say of what they're going to accomplish. But they simply do not have the power to do that. They do not have the power to accomplish everything they want to accomplish. And we would say the president of the United States is probably the most powerful person in the world. We would say that probably is true. If the most powerful person in the world doesn't have the power to have their word be done, who am I? But we have a God who tells us, listen, when I speak, it happens. When I say something, what I want to get accomplished out of what I say, oh, it happens. Now, we don't always like what happens because we have family and we have friends that when we go to them and we share the gospel with them, they say no. And we think, God, this can't be. This can't be how it's gonna end. There's no way this is gonna be. Your word will not return to your void, we'll say, but listen, that might be the purpose at that time. For them to say no. Just not everybody in the world is going to be saved by the grace of God. It doesn't mean that he's not effective. It doesn't mean that he's not working. It doesn't mean that he's not moving. It doesn't mean that he's messed up. It will not return to him void. Well, secondly, not only do we talk about the power of his word, but turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 21 verse 4 to 11 because I want to see the proclamation of his position. Verse 4 through 11 of Matthew 21. Matthew says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Here, what we see Jesus doing is we see him fulfilling prophecy of the coming Messiah. We see him actually staking his claim. 
This is who I am. I am the Savior. I am the Messiah, the one that you have been waiting for. In the past, as we've seen in a lot of passages, he would say, don't tell anybody what's happened here, right? Don't tell anybody what you've seen. Don't tell anybody about how you were healed. Keep it quiet. But now he's not doing that anymore. Now he's allowing all these things to happen, but he's doing it on purpose, and it's because prophecy needed to be fulfilled. Uh, the quote that was in here that we just read in verse, in verse 5 is out of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter uh, 9, verse 9 through 10. Uh, we're going to look at a little bit, but it was said in Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I would guess that the multitude wasn't thinking about this as he's riding through town. But again, Jesus having everything play out exactly how it needs to play out, it's here he is riding on a donkey. Now, this isn't the only place that this was prophesied. I really enjoyed studying this part because actually in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38 through 40, you can just listen. But one of David's sons decides he is going to be king, even though it had been promised to Solomon. And so then David responds, and look at how David responds by saying, no, Solomon is king. It says, so Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok, the priest, took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet And all the people said, long live King Solomon. And the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. It's really a good comparison, is it not, of what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus in the line of David, a king in the line of David, rides into town just like David would have his son, King Solomon, do on a colt, on a donkey, to ride into town with praise, with adoration being made known. So we see that as well. But also in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 through 11, again, listen as I read this, because Jacob prophesied this of Judah. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now this is Jacob talking about Judah, but we know that Jesus is the tribe of Judah. He is the choice vine on the donkey, bound to the donkey. Right, that we see in John chapter 15, I am the vine. You are the branches, now, this is stuff that maybe you've never even noticed before. It's nothing you've, and that's very common. Listen, I'm not saying you've all failed the quiz this morning. No, what I'm saying is I want you to see how intricate Christ has planned everything out. And it's happening exactly. And there's no mess up. There's no mistake. And now Christ rides into town proclaiming his position. I am the Messiah. I am the king that you have been waiting for, but we all know that it's not the type of king that they wanted. It wasn't the type of king that they accepted. I have three uh, things that describe Christ as king, and this is how we're going to close this morning. First of all, we see he is a humble king. 
He comes into town on this colt, on this donkey, not on a war horse, not with a parade of warriors behind him. No, he comes into town on this donkey and he's coming into town willing to conquer our true enemy, right? It's sin and death. That is what Christ is coming in town to do. In his humility, he is coming to conquer sin and death. He is going to be the willing sacrifice that is needed, that the people might not even have wanted, but he knows that it's needed. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see the humility of this king to lay down his life for his people. You see in in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 10, I know we've already talked about it a little bit. But after it says, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? This is what verse 10 says. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, what Zechariah is saying is this Messiah is coming very different than what you think. Oh, other kings ride into town on chariots. They, they have the war horses all around them. They, they make sure that their bow is seen and that their might and that their power is seen. And they will talk about the people that they have slain and that they have destroyed. But oh, no, not the Messiah that you need. He's going to come into town on a donkey. And he's going to cut off the chariots. He's going to cut off the war horses and the battle bull. And what he's going to do is he's going to speak peace to the nations. And listen, he's going to be a king from sea to sea. From the river's beginning to its ends. He's going to be the king over everything. Not just some little country or some little kingdom. No, he's going to be the king of all. And why is that? Because he is the only king that is able to conquer our true enemy, sin, death, hell, and the grave. He's the only one that can do that. And so he comes into town humble. But Jesus is also a very mighty king because we know in Scripture, and Pastor Scott stole my thunder on this a little bit this morning, but we know that one day, Scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we got to ask the question, well, why why will they bow down? Why will they confess? Well, we see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16, where John would write, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. There's the horse. There's the war horse. One day Christ will come on a war horse. First time it was humbly on a donkey. The second time, mighty on his war horse. Let's continue on. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We ask, why will they bow down? This is why. Because he's King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords. He really is the only one worthy to bow down to. The only one. He's the only one who's earned it. He's the only one who deserves it. And one day we know that because of his might, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But I don't want to leave us there when we talk about his might. Because a little later in Revelation 22, verse 16 through 17, please listen to this. Because in our triumph, I think of just because who we are and where we live and trying to be mighty, we think of the war horse. And, and you, you might even be saying, Pastor, that's a great thing to end on. We're kind of pumped. Let's leave. We're ready to fight. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 through 17, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. We still see the invitation of grace being poured out. Oh yes, a mighty warrior on a horse to judge, right? To judge and to do this. Yes, that day is coming, but right now is still the invitation, Are you thirsty for life? Come to me, your mighty king. Come and trust in me. It's free. It's a free gift that I have given to you. Please come. So just like he would talk to Martha, Martha, do you believe? Still today, at the end of Revelation, the way that the word of God would end is, come, those who are thirsty, and drink. It It is free. We still have that question, do you believe? But then lastly, he's an eternal king. He's humble, he's mighty, <clears throat> but he's eternal. All the other kingdoms of this world have fallen. And if they have not fallen yet, they will. It will happen. If the Lord tarries, one day our great nation will fall. It's just how it goes. We see it all throughout history. God provides kings. God God provides leaders. We have these things set up. We see this in the book of Romans, but they all fail. They all fail because they're not perfect. They all fail because sin is a part of them. But the kingdom of God that is talked about in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of God that we see in scripture over and over again is a kingdom that lasts forever. And our king lasts forever. Our king reigns forever. We never have to worry. Oh, our king is getting old. Is his son going to do as good of a job? What is going to happen? What is going to take over? We never have to worry about these things. We don't even have to worry about enemies coming our way because our king has already conquered them all for us. We're in a kingdom with an eternal king who forever has the power, who forever loves us, who forever is our savior. We don't have to doubt that. I know that this is hard for us to grasp because we do not live in a kingdom. We do not live with a king. We actually live in a day and age where we would push that back. But we need a king. We can't do it on our own. We can get committees. We can get legislation. We can get Congress and we can get a Senate. 
We can do all kinds of things within the church. We just found a book of all the committees in our church, the Committee of Committees. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. We make up all these things. We make up all this stuff to try to make things work, to try to understand it all. Listen, we are a part of a kingdom that is perfect, that has the perfect savior and the perfect king on the throne. And for some reason, Christian, brother and sister, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you're a part of that kingdom. Isn't that an amazing thought? That a perfect king would choose you? That a perfect king would, would choose me? Listen, I, I've been passed by plenty in my life. I just wasn't the right fit. I wasn't the right candidate. I wasn't this. I, I wasn't that. Maybe, maybe some of you know what that's like or what that's about. And listen, it gets me down. It, it gets me frustrated. It, it gets me sad. Things in this world can really just weigh and get me down. But this has to make us excited that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for, would, would choose me, would choose you. Who cares if the rest of the people pass me up? Who cares if I don't get the promotion? Who cares if they don't like me? God loves me and my savior has saved me and he holds me and I'm a part of his kingdom forever. That's a glorious thing. That's an exciting thing. Well, I hope you'll be able to come back tonight as we talk about the praise that he is due. We've already talked about some of it. He deserves our praise because of what he's done for us. But my hope and prayer, again, I, I don't know how to end this sermon really any other way, but to ask that question, is he your king? Is he truly your king? Have you really accepted him as the Messiah and as the savior? Because if you haven't, then he is not your king and these promises are not yours. You don't have this as yours, but you can, because like it said in Revelation, come if you're thirsty and drink from me. God wants to do that in your life. I trust that you will surrender to him. And for those of us who are saved by God's grace, I hope that we'll be praising his name because of his goodness to us and we'll be excited about the love that he has for us. Well, I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. We wanna respond to God's word this morning. If you're here and you've never been saved by the grace of God, but you're thinking right where you're sitting, you're thinking, I need to do that. I want to do that. But you're saying, I'm not sure how. Listen, I want to invite you to talk to me after. I'll be up here for a few minutes. And I'm not worried about everybody else. I'm worried about you then. And you find me and you grab me. Don't think that you're interrupting anything. You grab me and you ask me and you talk to me. I would love to share more with you about what it means to be saved by the grace of God. I know Pastor Scott would feel the same way, Pastor Spencer, Pastor Matt up here. And there's others who could probably do the same thing we would do. Do not leave if you have questions. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But Christian, I wanna give you the opportunity as well to respond to God's word this morning. However, God has spoken to you. I, I trust that he has. And it's our job to respond as we hear his word. So I trust you'll do that as we sing here in a moment. But let's pray. God, help us to be faithful to your word today. I hope that I've been faithful in the preaching of your word. God, as we look at this time, as you enter Jerusalem and you're really walking already the road to 
Golgotha of where you would die and be crucified for our sins. God, what a scene that must have been, people to, to praise you. God, a little later, the Pharisees trying to rebuke everybody for shouting and you telling the Pharisees, listen, if, if they don't do this, the rocks will shout out. And God, that's because you deserve praise. You are worthy of praise and you alone are. And so God, forgive us as Christians of how often we fail in our praise to you, but God, help us to, to sing your praises, to, to shout your praises, to, to have it be very quick on the end of our tongue to let people know who you are and what you've done in our life. God, to praise you. God, we love you. Help us to respond to your word faithfully now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.